Welcome to the Theology Pugcast. This is C.R. Wiley, and we are podcasting at the Corner Pug in West Hartford, Connecticut. And uh, we're going to keep our introductions brief today, although we are going to talk about something that each of us are working on separately, and I'll get started. As I noted, I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm the pastor of the Presbyterian Church of Manchester in Manchester, Connecticut. And I've just recently gotten a contract to write a book. And the book is on Tom Bombadil. And uh, it's going to be a book that explores some of the themes that uh, we, we examined uh, in an earlier podcast. Uh, and if you're interested in, in uh, visiting that podcast, I believe the title of that that particular episode is Who is Tom Bombadil? Anyway, there's that. How about uh, Glenn? How about you giving us a little background on you, Glenn, and uh, your book contract? Yes, um, my name is Glenn Sunshine. I'm a professor of early modern European history at Central Connecticut State University and a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I also got a book contract. Mine is on limited government and Protestant resistance theory. Uh, based on an earlier podcast, we, which uh, we covered uh, back in May, I think. Yeah, um, yeah. And I think it was just called Protestant Resistance Theory. The book will be called Taming Leviathan, and if you don't understand that, I'll explain it in the introduction. Good. <laughs> Great. And Tom, I know you're working on a book, too. Yep. I'm Tom Price, systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, teaching both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And my book is going to be entitled um, Evangelicalism Lost, How Social Agendas Are Subverting the Gospel. And uh, so it's going to be picking up on a lot of the topics we've discussed, going into a little more history and depth, and then turning to sort of a theological proposal of how to address it and uh, retrieve some of the riches from the Christian faith that uh, are being suppressed and eclipsed. I need to read that book. <laughs> you, need to, you need to write it. That's right. It's, on, it's, it's in process. So. <laughs> now, it seems to me that uh, the topic of the day, and it's your day, it kind of ties into this. It does. It, I think it, it may find its way into it in, in one way or the other. Um, we've, we've talked about uh, it. Excuse me, before we get into that, a word of explanation. We're not in the back room today. Right, right. <laughs> the running dog capitalists who run this institution <laughs> um, actually found a paying customer who rented the back room from uh, out from under us. So yeah, yeah. Uh, they're paying, we're not. That's so right. we're in the main So pub, enjoy so. the 80s music in the background. <laughs> it differs from some of the music we've had on before back there. And, uh, right, right. And, and join, join the conversation. <laughs> right. Yeah, thanks for that uh, word of explanation, Glenn. Thanks. Um, so. so yes, uh, the, the theme I'm going to talk about today connects with some of the, uh, er, some earlier themes that we've talked about on the uh, podcast. Um, but it's going to take it with a kind of in a new direction. And this is all surrounding the issue about the, the current kind of increased attention and sometimes uh, fanaticism that is going along in, going around in, in you know, Western culture in particular around the issue of ecology and the environment. So right. the, the um, strong emphasis on being green. Yeah, right. And the way in which this um, Kind of ethical vision, if you could call it that, is becoming more and more its own kind of theological uh, vision in its own right, or its own 
worldview. Mm -hmm. So it's moving beyond sort of just concern for the environment or conservation to becoming a complete ideology, worldview, if not religion. We'll get more into that. But some of the things you start to see about it, um, we just have this young girl from Sweden going around um, pontificating about how much, you know, everyone in the West's sins have been um, and how we're depleting the future generations because of the you know, monstrosity of Western indulgence and uh, destruction of the environment. Right. And that there is this... Um, well, you know, it's funny. But if, if, if they really are as misanthropic as they make themselves out to be, shouldn't they be happy that our, 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 our progeny are going to suffer? <laughs> there's, there, this is an interesting thing. We, we could probably spend a, a good amount of time on talking about kind of the hypocrisies and the right. inconsistencies. But one of the things I think we all notice that's going on with it is the urgency. There is yeah. this sense of urgency that is growing in a lot of the... Um, it's being vocalized in the movement. Right. If this isn't done... You know, if we don't address this issue and we don't solve this issue, um, future generations are gone. Um, you know, things are going to move, and we're going to be destroying the planet in such a, a, at such a rapid pace that really an apocalypse is is on the way. Right, right. So we we have that kind of side of it. But one of the things you do is see the increasing numbers getting on board with this. It's not just sort of one, two, three people showing up at these these protests oh, yeah, and right, events. Right. Um, and I think what you're seeing is, in, a, in, a, in Western society, as a spiritual vacuum has opened up, as Christianity has become so melted down to offering very little to the rest of the culture, they're looking for something. Let's get good. Okay, it's fine. Sorry. Okay. Um, so there's, there's kind of no repeating what she said. <laughs> There's no way to turn the music. <laughs> uh, but what we have is, is we're seeing that, um, that as people are increasingly becoming passionate about this, um, it's no longer sort of a rational discussion and looking for easy collaborative ways to address these issues, but it is taking on a either-or mentality. You're either completely with us in this crusade to save the planet and it has to be saved in this particular way or you are not an ally and therefore you're part of this whole um, you know uh, evil empire that is trying to destroy the planet and bring injustice everywhere you go so I mean it's there's a way of kind of uh, tying it to the other injustices that we see and, and the rest of you know, in the rest of these particular movements. Um, but the reason I brought it up is because I do think this is going to be one of those places at which the church could be caught off guard in knowing how to deal with it because it's another ethical vision tied to a very strong spirituality that has a shared interest in doing well to the environment and doing right. well to, you know, to, to preserving life and flourishing that it can easily attract people in the church who don't know a theological alternative. And so they can be caught up in that same kind of passion and start to wreak the same kind of havoc in the church that is starting to split the wider culture. Yeah, well, I think we're seeing that. Yeah, um, yeah. A couple of quick observations, and maybe these are themes that you want to get to later on and with some more depth. 
but you know, as we were talking a little bit before the show began, uh, our friend Peter Jones is known for essentially categorizing different worldviews as either oneism or twoism. And this is definitely kind of a oneism, a monism. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And monisms are characterized by their uh, their their inability to accommodate individuality, their ability inability to sort of make space for free action, free moral action. Yeah. Uh, within a twoism, you've got you've got already the structure that allows for individual identity distinctions that you can make. And also room for air and waste, <laughs> things of that nature. Within a within a tight, you know, sort of monism, there's none of that. Uh, you kind of are absorbed into the whole, and you know, essentially, identity is illusory and even evil. We've got a, a, a honking horn outside that uh, just doesn't go off. This this show has is going to be characterized by a lot of personality. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Just just a quick word on oneism versus twoism. Um, in explanation here, oneism says that there's only one basic thing that everything is made up of. It, right. it can be matter. It can be spirit. It can be something. But there's just a single thing out there that exists. Twoism says that there are basically two things there. There's creator and creation. Um, it's easy to think of this as matter and spirit or something like that, but that's not what twoism is really about. What twoism is about is the distinction between a transcendent creator and the creation. And, as, and what I was kind of getting at is that implies that there are kind of other distinctions that, 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 that kind of follow right. from that basic distinction. Yeah, right. but for people who aren't familiar with it, oh, it's sure. probably good to uh, right. guess right. the definition. So. Right. That's right. right. And, and I think that's going to be a very key point in, in providing, I think, a solid and rich Christian um, contribution to the, the issues there, but also a balancing act that doesn't lead to the fanaticisms and allows the church to kind of do its own witness without, uh, you know, getting Getting, having its people sucked into the whole movement. Yeah. On the other hand, I think there is going to be pushback, and we'll talk about this, by, by the, the, the more fanatical extremes of this movement, especially toward the church, because there has for a long time been an association with Christianity as basically providing the groundwork for exploitation of and um, you know, a, a nasty domination of the creation basically to serve selfish needs and ends. And uh, I'll start out kind of a, a classic example, Lynn White's 1967 work, The Historical Roots of the Ecological Crisis, basically blamed squarely, and this was the first major work on the history of, of the ecological crisis, Christianity, and the quote was, we shall continue to have a um, a worsening ecological crisis until we reject the Christian axiom that nature has no reason for existence save to serve man. Mm -hmm. Now, if you listen to that definition of Christianity, the first thing that springs to my mind is this is not classic Christianity. Right. This is Kantian man. Right. This is right. modernity. Right. Uh, modernity, as we talked over and over again, is one that embraced, on the one hand, that strand of Western thought that moved away from there being order and purpose in creation, and creation having its own inherent goodness and distinct nature moving towards its fulfillment. 
And so there was something within nature itself that allowed us to receive it as a gift, cultivate it, shape it, and care for it. Um, and then we had a special task as Christians to cultivate it in a way that it flourished and it worked towards the flourishing of, of human beings as well, but for the whole. Yeah. Um, as an example of this, if you read Calvin's commentaries on Genesis, he talks about the importance of taking care of your land and making sure it is well cultivated. He's in an area, of course, that's agricultural yep. around the city of Geneva. Um, but he says that it is important to pass on your land to your descendants so that it is as well cultivated or, if possible, even better than when you received it. it. Right. So he is he's really focusing on maintaining the land, improving the land, those kinds of things, not on plundering it. Yeah, that's right. Uh, and, and this is Calvin, who's ostensibly responsible for <laughs> capitalism. That's right. That's right. And, and sweatshops and mm, uh, right. smokestacks. Right. <laughs> that's right. And which is the, where the classic word, you know, in, in Latin, concert, you know, where conservation comes from, um, preserving, maintaining, cons, cons, I can't even say it in the Latin right now, but... Um, but it basically has at its root this notion of maintaining, um, preserving, and one of the things that is tied to it is it's being conservative towards it, which is a strange right. entrance into any kind right. of left vision. Right. But we can, we'll get we can kind of get yeah, to I, it. That reminds me of, a, of something that Russell Kirk said one time. He was invited to to a debate. He used to to be in, in, in one of the interlocutors in the debate. And uh, he said, okay, what's the resolution, you know? And basically the resolution had to do with the environment. He says, you know, what, what, what am I supposed to be arguing for? He says, you're against the environment. He says, wait, wait. <laughs> uh, it, no, I'm not against it. I'm not going to, I'm not going <laughs> to. That's right. But the assumption was that because he was a, a conservative yeah. that he would be sort of an, an expression of this view, you know. It's Kantian. Yeah. And, uh, I, and by the way, this particular, this, this outlook, particularly in places where you have or this read, I should say, uh, that uh, is expressed in, in this work. Uh, what's the author's name again? Lynn White. White. Lynn White, that's right, I thought it was White. Uh, he essentially uh, you know, has created a, an outlook, of a sort of a frame of reference that I've actually come across in my pastoral ministry. So like when you're in, in, in a place where you know, you've got some people working in the sciences or who have some, some interest in sort of a, the, the scientific uh, endeavor, but also uh, spiritual matters, religious matters. They they come across this guy, yeah. and in my in my working with different people uh, over the course of my ministry in places like Cambridge and even here in Connecticut, I've come across this argument. Yeah. Um, yeah so if you're if you're a pastor and you, and you've you're, you're taken aback by this and you think this is just something that you know is some curio that you know, comes to us from the, the days of the hippies that, that Thomas just dug up that no one knows about. No, this is actually pretty, pretty uh, influential, this particular view this, from Lynn Yeah, White. this argument is around, and you, you'll hear, you, you see it sometimes uh, and from the theological world. Um, it, it shows up in two areas. On the one hand, they like to criticize the classic understanding of creation completely dependent on the creator, because that means from this world that the, cre the creation is so dependent on the creator, almost like a, a female would be on the patriarch, that it had no dignity of its own. So they already have a, a perverse, so they, in theology, you see them trying to move towards something that is called panentheism, this notion that the creation, in some sense, 
um, is, a, is a relational other to God that God needs to be fully God and to, to be complete, and that the creation, too, has a contribution in making God complete and then having its own dignity. So you see this movie, even in Christian circles, they're trying to redraw their... What's fascinating about that is here are the feminists more or less tacitly endorsing the traditional view yeah. that creation is a she. Yes, yeah, yeah. Right. right. Yeah, they just want to give her a more determining factor towards yeah, right. uh, who God is versus um, the classical understanding. And then, but then you see it in the second way by the association of um, the issue, oh, well, you see it typically around the notion of the Christian task of um, cultivating and dominating the creation. Right. They will take that and they will look at the way that Enlightenment Christians, if you can use the term, practiced it, or mm -hmm. Enlightenment figures who, who justified the Enlightenment based on Christian principles. Right, um, right. And, and they looked at the exploitation and said, oh, well, that's what Christian means by, me, meant by, you know, in the garden we were given the task to basically dominate the creation, use it yeah. for whatever we want. Yeah. Right. And that's key word, there's a difference between dominion and domination, that's which we pointed out on an earlier episode that's really right. critical here. Yeah, yeah I think that's that, what Tom Bombadil helps us see. Right. right. Yeah. yeah, and um, as an aside, the, the other place where you really see Lynn White's view in action, mm. uh, I would say you find it in dispensational eschatology. Really? That's yeah. Interesting. It's all going to burn. Yeah, right. So we right. might as well take, I mean, this, if I remember gotcha, right, James gotcha. Watt, yeah. um, <laughs> the Secretary of the Interior under Reagan, actually made the argument that we don't really need to worry because Jesus is coming back soon and it's all going to burn anyway. Yeah, right. So we might as well take advantage of what we got. That's right, right, right. So you do run into it in that, in that, in that circle as well, which is, I think, worth noting. Here, yeah, right? I, I, I think it is. And before we just kind of castigate these, this reading of things from figures like Lynn White, there probably was warrant, <laughs> because I do think um, mainline Christianity in particular, in trying to accommodate the gospel so much to modernity and the Enlightenment, did associate right. itself with Kantian man yeah, right. um, in many ways. And my argument coming forth is that I think evangelicals did it, whether they, they wanted to or not, in many cases. Well, this is the great irony we were talking about earlier. Yeah. So, so to be cool, 100 years ago, we had to conform to the Enlightenment. We had to kind of take on this, this sort of, uh, sort of uh, instrumentalist approach to the created order. That's right. Uh, and now, to, to continue to be cool, we have to renounce the last strategy to be cool. Cool. And so <laughs> what, we, what we do by, by embracing all of these critical theory and, and the kind of the radical environmental agenda is showing that we're just accommodating again. And as soon as the, the next space and step of criticism come towards the limits of these, Christianity that aligned itself with these will be placed in another situation of compromise and 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 shown yeah, its, its yeah, radical uh, limits. A hundred years from now, when we're all living in mud huts again, <laughs> <laughs> they'll blame us again. That's right. <laughs> well, yeah. the, 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 the good news is that now that uh, evangelicals are beginning to move in this direction, it's almost a certain sign that it's about to die. <laughs> that's, right. that's right. That's right. How do you know when the bus has yeah. really left the stage? Yeah, well, it's when the evangelicals are running after it. That's right. So I guess, uh, you know, as I think about 
what this means is maybe we should just ignore st some of this stuff, <laughs> or maybe all of this stuff, and just think about sort of, you know, what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, what is the world that God has made, and then not try to be cool and paradoxically become the coolest kids in the room, if you get my, my drift. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're, Christians ought to be environmentalists, but they're going to be environmentalists on very different terms yeah. than the ones that, that we're seeing grabbing the spotlight today. Isn't that what we see in Tolkien? Right. That's yeah. Exactly. I think, I think, you know, sometimes if Tolkien's one of these figures that neither side can actually fully embrace, there are things about him that yeah. both sides like, yeah. but there are things about him that both sides can't relate to. Which means he's typically carrying out the Christian text the right way. Yeah, right. Because I think that's what it does. It, it's not assimilatable either into the, the polarities we like, we like to force it into. Right. And it is able to walk that line um, in, in, in under its own direction because it has its own ordering principle and its, its own purposes and ends. Right. Yeah. I, I want to I introduce something here that just <laughs> occurs to me now. I've never thought about this before, but I don't want to derail your train, okay. Tom. So if 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 you don't want to ride ride on this little pump wagon, you know that's fine. But here's the observation: the ants. Now, when we're introduced to Treebeard, what we're introduced to is a, is the the male side of the species. You know, Treebeard and all the other ants who are living in Fanghorn are male. And they delight in being in the wild outdoors. They don't want cultivation. They want things to be as raw and natural as possible. The ant wives, who we only learn about as you know, Treebeard explains to the hobbits where the females have gone, <laughs> they were the cultivators. The females were the ones who loved the small, small things, neat things, well-ordered things, hmm. gardens. And it's fairly likely that there's at least one of them in the Shire. Yeah, yeah. And, and it doesn't Treebeard ask that question? If you, when he hears the, you know, Mary and Pippin describe the Shire, he says, the Antwise would love that place. <laughs> Have you seen them? Yeah. <laughs> and, and actually, early on, they're talking about a giant, seeing a giant. It was like a, as big as an elm tree. Oh, really? I don't remember that. And, and they're, they're, Ted Sandyman and others are talking in the, yeah. the, the, the wow. inn. i got to look that up. The, the um, Green Dragon. Yeah, uh, yeah. They're, they're in the Green Dragon, and they're talking, and there's this reference to a giant. It's yeah. like an elm tree. Well, it was really, it really was an elm tree. I'm thinking it's an antwise. Yeah, maybe you're right. Maybe you're right. That's. I'll have to look that up. But anyway, but, this, no, but I, I, I think that reflects this sort of this separation. Yeah, it does. And I think Tolkien it was one of the few people at, at a time, at that time, that, that was able to recapture the, the classic Christian vision of creation in relation to the exploitations that he saw happening from the, the more radical ends of the Enlightenment, especially in relationship to the war and its destructive capacity. That's one angle. But there are, you know, there are people who talk about other well, ends. And, and, you know, you look at it, and it's, it's not that Tolkien was a back-to-nature guy. That's right. You know, the, the Shire is, is yeah. paradise to him, but it's yeah. well-cultivated, it's farms. When you get to Minas Tirith, the, this, this great advanced city, it's built in such a way that it is it works well into the um, the physical geography of it. 
Mm -hmm. um, and my favorite example is actually Gimli, hmm. when he is talking about the the caves of Aglaron. Oh yeah, right. And he talks about what what he would do with it if he moved in there, and just you know the, the care and and the love that that the dwarves would expend to just bring out the beauty of the place. Right. Um, more more kind of like uh, thinking about it like we think of Yellowstone or something like that, or you know a great park in the in the American West. You know, he, he talks about how that that they might just do one small chip in an entire right. anxious day of work. Right, right, right. You know, the, the, this this feeling of reverence for the dwarves, for its its stone, for the elves, its wood, right. for men it's well anything really that it's there to be used, it's there to be developed, but it's not there to be wantonly destroyed or exploited. That's right. Sauron, that's Saruman, that's not right. the right way of approaching the world. Right, right. Because in scripture, the earth is the Lord's. Right. It's not ours. We're right. stewards. Right. Right. That's right, and and I think you think even philosophically the transcendentals, um, truth, beauty, and goodness, which the early church naturally gravitated towards because it complemented the glory of God, truthfulness right. of God, and right. you know, the the uh, and the goodness of creation and in the Creator. And so what you have there are things that are not, when they're pursued for their own sake, they are not. You're not exploiting them. Mm -hmm. And so the creation, which has its own participation in these things, when it is pursued in accord with those aspects of it, um, it isn't for the exploitation, it's mm -hmm. the actual cultivating to allow those things to flourish in a fuller sense. And so the Christian task of, of cultivating was that something about the, the human share in bringing the, the creation itself to the fullest expression of its goodness, truthfulness, and, and beauty, if you could use that language. Um, so but now, we, you know, the fall happened, and mm -hmm. thorns grew, mm -hmm. and part of the, the, the reconciliation in Christ is the first fruits has been a, a kind of bringing something of redemption to bear on, on right. the time we're in now, the already but not yet. And, and so I do think that modern science um, grew out of the, the kind of cultivated mm -hmm. um, vision that Christianity brought, um, and therefore it had a healthy side, but it got, I would argue, hijacked by a very unhealthy side. Mm -hmm. Well, we see that right now with, you know, sort of genetic engineering, where there is, on the one hand, something marvelous, you yeah. know, we want to identify the genetic, you know, uh, sources or, or sort of bases for certain diseases. And on the other hand, you know, you've got eugenics. Yeah. And you've got, That's right. uh, you know, you know, attempts to sort of create hybrid, hybrids, dogs and men or whatever you're talking about. You know, there there <laughs> are right. these crazy ideas, but whatever crazy idea that seems to come along that you kind of suspect that the Chinese will try it. <laughs> you know, anyway. They've, they're already thinking about it. Well, what are some of the re responses to, well, we could look at it a different way. With, with the more radical elements of the Enlightenment and Kantian view of humanity, 
was this notion that human beings themselves basically were, were nature all the way down except in their rational capacity to transcend it. And that rational capacity was not grounded really in God, but was grounded in the human in some sense, human willing. And so the human through its, its kind of rational, well its project of projecting its rationality onto the world rather than getting it from the world, um, allowed human beings to be free in a way that Kant and others thought they weren't free before. So no longer are we limited by our natures or by tradition or by what others have taught us, but through the use of our own resources, we're able to kind of create, well, our, our brain is structured in such a way that it projects meaning onto the world, purpose onto the world, and so therefore we can utilize our minds to develop technologies that help us bring the world into conformity to the way we... Well, this brings us back to something you had observed earlier. There's an inner contradiction here. Yeah. The same people who are extolling the, the, the you know, sort of the, the almost div divine character of the world are also the, the same people who want to alter their bodies to conform to their wills and so forth. Well, that's, that's one of the things I think that is worth pointing out, and I, I know that a lot of these people aren't too worried about rational coherence. <laughs> and that's why it's the, way to the move it. to fanaticism, I think. Well, that, there you go. Yeah. So when you stop caring about yeah. that, Co yeah. rational coherence, yeah. well, you're already in the rational, or you're already a fanatic. You're already a fanatic, and this is why I think, that, I think maybe bringing up the topic kind of what's related to that is, it's worth pursuing a coherent picture as an alternative, because as Christians we believe in coherence, is, right. you know, we believe it's significant. Um, but also, how in the world are we going to um, provide a stance as well as a witness within an environment that's increasingly fanatical. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. And that's, I mean, you're, you're looking at the kind of fanaticism people would claim sort of certain Puritans had. Yeah. yeah. Or certain, you know, right. the witch trials, if, you know, right, whatever, is, right. whatever is true about that. But, but right. you know, in terms of this kind of irrational um, moral urgency, and it, there's this kind of puritanical dimension to it that if you're not looking at it with this full vision that we have, you somehow are an enemy, you're evil. Right. And though you, you can't poke holes in it because you're already stained, because you're already someone, if yeah. you even question it, you're automatically guilty of what they're, tr you know. Right. There, right. There's an interesting article I saw from, um, I forgot who wrote it. He was, uh, he's an atheist philosopher in which he's talking about Culture War 2.0. And in Culture War 2.0, people who believe in reason, rationality, and debate, atheists, and he hates to admit it, Christians, are lined up against atheists and Christians who reject it. Yes. It's, right. it's a fascinating article, but it's describing exactly the, the phenomenon you're seeing here, that there, there are certain ideas that are considered well, out, outside the pale, you can't, right. you, you can't, you yeah. can't articulate this. You can't think it. You can't do anything. And if you try, we're going to shut you up. We're going to shut you down. We're going to, we're going to destroy you. Yeah. Yeah. This brings up something. I think uh, we're, we're maybe, um, you know, it would be good for us to go again sometime. And and, and that is uh, unusual alliances, or sort of these yeah. <laughs> sort of counterintuitive alliances. So, I have more in common with some Catholics some, some yeah. Catholics, than I have with some evangelicals, mm -hmm. some reformed people. I feel more at home yeah. 
mm-hmm. with a guy like Tony Esselin yep. than I do with, I could name a bunch of people, but I won't. <laughs> if you get my point. Yes. Yeah. And some of those people are people who are famous for being evangelicals. Yeah. Well, then along with that, the, you, you, there are atheists that are easier to do business with. Than I, I've met them. People who are, who, who are Christians. I've met them. You know, for example, I was with Milo, mm-hmm. you know, the notorious Milo. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I liked him. <laughs> <laughs> and we yeah. and we had a we had a we had a, 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 a good conversation. Or he was rational. Yeah. Uh, he was witty. Yeah. He, he, had, was, he uh, has an antenna for a lot of the issues that are going yeah. on. He was he was smart. Yeah. And he was funny. Yeah. And he could take a joke. <laughs> a rarity these days. <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> but I know some people who are evangelical icons yeah. who are not witty, yeah. can't take a joke. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you get my point. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you know that it, it just explains a lot of the strange results of a increasingly. Um, Strange cultural situation, soup, if you will, um, that is being generated by a lot of these different shifts in emphasis. Um, And again, I do think once the Enlightenment kind of rational vision no longer held sway, this is kind of, this is something people like Francis Schaeffer used to talk about, another type of, you know, strange groups starting connecting with each other because there isn't a higher vision holding them together. And of course, the Enlightenment vision was to make up for the fact that it broke down mm-hmm, mm-hmm. something of a, of a, of a Christian, um, you know, worldview, and, and started to 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 run with certain aspects of it. But it, it created positions that undermined it in in the end, and those things eventually undermined the whole vision completely. Interesting book I'm reading. Um, it, it, it's something about the heavenly cities in the 18th century, and it's the heavenly city of the 18th century philosophers. Yes, know. and it's a very interesting line because he calls it. You know, he picks up that that old line of what he calls the, um, you know, the kind of the climate of opinion. Hmm. And he said, when you look back, and he's he's writing as sort of a, a, a modernist you know, agnostic or atheist, and he kind of presents it strange that the whole first chapter is him basically justifying the kind of modern world vision. <laughs> it's it's yeah, funny, you don't right. see that anymore. Right. But um, one of the things he notes is, he said, for all the, all the when you read Voltaire and you read all these er, early Enlightenment figures, the philosophes, as he calls them, right. and, and you read what they're up to, um, he, he said, all of their arguments, as passionate as they are and how much they claim to neutrality and objectivity, were fundamentally Christian arguments right. and Christian positions. Right. They just were immanentizing them. They were taking, as he puts right. it brilliantly, he said they were taking Augustine's City of God, breaking it down, and then rebuilding it in, in, in basically modern and contemporary ways. Right, right. And I think what happens is, and I, we've said that episode after episode, is that this, this humanistic project um, basically used Christian imagery and it it took Christian propositions but in a very limited way it undermined them with filling them with whole different wholly different content and then it sold itself as some kind of new basically and better right. worldview and what postmodernity does is it's able to see that this vision wasn't new and better it was steeped in the very things that it was it was trying right. to distance itself with but what postmodernity hasn't been able to do well is dissociate enlighten, the Enlightenment 
perversion of Christianity with really classic Christian teaching and mm -hmm. the real deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as an interesting example, my, my favorite example of this is the movie Thor, hmm. okay. the, the Marvel film Thor, sure, sure. where you know Thor is um, in the beginning he is interested in warfare and fighting and and all of this sort of thing and he wants to go and trash the the frost giants hmm. and Odin his father says basically he's um, you know he's wrong and he needs to be working for peace and all of this kind of thing and when I first saw that my immediate reaction was this is the perfect example of the triumph of Christianity yeah right? yeah because Odin. In the Norse myths, <laughs> Odin used to lure his favorites into battle so that they would get killed so he could have them in Valhalla. Right, right. I mean, he was treacherous. That's right. He was, yeah. um, you know, and he was emphatically a warmonger. That's right. Right. But you can't present them that way. That's right. You've got to present them in a way that a Christianized culture can accept. Yeah. Well, here, here's a thought, and we've, ex we've sort of danced around this a mm -hmm. uh, number of times, getting up close to it. Uh, the whole idea of whether or not these values, these Christian values, which are still with us, but in sort of in new clothes, mm -hmm. whether or not the clothes will remain and the Christianity will go away. In, in other words, mm -hmm. for example, yeah. for, uh, when I think about compassion mm -hmm. or love, what what is the you know basis for that mm -hmm. uh, out apart from Christianity? I don't know if I can identify one. Now you might be able to make some kind of a sort of attempt to yeah. justify it based on some kind of sophisticated reworking of, of, of Darwinism, some kind of neo-Darwinist Dar yeah. Darwinism or Buddhism. Yeah, where where compassion is actually less outward focused than I would argue more inward focused. That well, you are compassionate because that helps you move toward enlightenment. But again, you're dealing with a spiritual vision right. you know, yeah. there, which is uh, you know, still out of accord with, mm -hmm. so like, in, a, like in, a, in, in the West right now, I, I think that what we have is a Gnostic sort of yeah. spirituality by necessity because what, what we have is is a is a order of nature which brings us back to the subject of the day we have an order of nature with without a telos without a sense of place for us as human beings mm -hmm. we're more or less superfluous to things uh maybe even uh parasitic yeah yeah and uh because of that uh when we look at you know processes of nature, red and tooth and claw, what, what kind of lesson are we to derive from that? Hmm. Well, we know deep down that something that we call love mm -hmm. is precious. Uh, and maybe we can justify it within the tight framework of a connection between a mother and a child, or yeah. within the framework of a, a man with his progeny, that kind of thing, or with his wife even. But outside of that, hmm. You know, mm -hmm. there doesn't seem to be a, a way to justify it mm -hmm. unless you adopt some kind of racial consciousness or, uh, you know, sort of consciousness of the species or consciousness. Yeah. But now we're back into spirituality. We might as well be Buddhists. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? I don't, I don't think... Well, what's interesting is if you read atheists, the continental atheists in Europe 
really look down their noses at the British atheists because sure. they say the British atheists are Christian atheists. Yeah, they're right. just trying to be, they're trying to maintain Christian morality and all of those kinds of things while being right. an atheist. And they said it doesn't work. Yeah, right. right. You no, know, so the continental atheists, I think, are far more honest. Yeah, I agree with them. I think they're right. Yeah. Um, but what they're going to go with is some form of utilitarianism or something along those lines <laughs> as their solution to the ethical problem. The problem, though, with that, as you know, is that if I really own all the chips, why should I give a rip what you think? Well, or let's add another thing. Let's suppose you do fully accept the utilitarian vision. That means there's really no space for the individual. Right, because in that scenario, if we're thinking about sort of the Benthamite or the John Mill, Stuart Mill, you know, we, but, but what is the basis for this concern for, for everybody? Mm -hmm. Well, and, and well, it isn't, and that's one of I mean, th one of the things that Alison McGrath did a thing on a uh, book on this reenchantment or something, and he really was uh, puzzled when he was because he started out as a scientist before he was converted and moved to, to Christianity. That's what we're up to. We're trying to convert scientists. Scientists, that's right. <laughs> because because <laughs> essentially they're not Christians. <laughs> that's right. I'm having a little fun. That's right. But one of the things he noticed was this. Well, he was troubled by is that as a, as a boy who grew up loving the natural world and what right. made him want to go into science is that. Here were all these scientists giving their devotion to nature and its profundities, but they were predominantly doing it to, to exploit or bring things under, you know, the direction, the direction of kind of, um, right. you know, this instrumental reason. And he said, but when he moved to the other side, the kind of romantic reaction against the Enlightenment's exploitations and this kind of return to the dignity of nature and that uh, we are reconnecting with the earth and our our primitive spirituality, sort of Rousseau before civilization yeah, right. hits, right? right. Um, but in this return, he, he said they, the only literature that kind of spoke about this return always talked about it not as something intrinsic within nature but basically a choice we make mm. so it was already it still embraced Kantian man mm -hmm. in its own way but just instead of making the choice directed to science and instrumental reason and the enlightenment project of bringing all things under our dominion and control for our own wants and wishes it basically moves the other direction and chooses to consider nature as sacred and sort of sacrifice the individual, if not the species, to the flourishing of, of right. creation. But only from a romantic imposition of meaning onto it, not because it has this meaning other than sentimentally. Right. So right. there isn't a, there wasn't, and so that, that kind of... So we still, we still grant to nature its meaning through our sentiments. But what you have in both cases, the enlightenment projection of our will and our reason onto nature, and this romantic return to nature as, as fundamentally um, sacred to which we need to sacrifice our choose, is this Kantian view of humanity or modernist view of humanity that is projecting our wants, wishes, or desires or our spiritual vision onto things and then making everything else adjust yeah, this, to that. This is, this is worth, I think, exploring a little bit because with the romantic vision, you're still sort of trapped in your consciousness. Yes. Uh, the earlier understanding was that when you were seeing, you were actually in some sense participating in something larger than yourself. Yeah. Now what we see is kind of the reverse of that, where we have our, our desires and our, and our longing for kind of a pre-conscious or pre-sort of uh, intellectual or intellectualized 
way of uh, relating to nature is, you know, uh, we, we impose that upon essentially a meaningless world. Yes. Now, this is obviously uh, incoherent. That's right. But w it doesn't seem to get you anywhere pointing that out, I've noticed with these people. Well, that's right. I mean, and, and the thing is, is, is that, um, you know, you, you'll have, uh, McGrath also mentions that sometimes when they realize that other people may not be naturally driven to want to choose mm -hmm. nature above everything else, they will move to this urgency sense that, that human survival depends on it. And ah. this is where we start to see, you know, the, yeah. the political, the, the Green New Deal and all of right, these things. Right, right. Um, if we don't do this, self-interest is involved here. So it's yeah. kind of a step back from a, a real romantic vision. That's interesting. And, and fundamentally, it ends up being a, an adamant, also a very adamant rejection of individualism. Yeah. yeah. The only solution is collectivist action. Right. Yes. And so it it results in centralized control. It results in a situation where individual desires, wants, needs, whatever, are subordinated to the larger cause. Yes. Mm -hmm. And essentially, the individual vanishes into the collective. Right. Right. Yeah, because you can't have waste in that world. You can't have people who are pursuing their own visions, maybe that are out of accord with that holistic, mm -hmm. and I mean that in a, in a pejorative way. Sure. Uh, approach to things. So there's really no there's really no space for you to do your thing. Yeah, and something we haven't really talked about. All of this connects into what we talked about. I think it was last time with um, critical theory. Yeah. In or two times ago, whenever it was, where critical theory is built around the idea that you've got oppressors and the oppressed. In this right. case, the oppressors are industrial capitalism, and the oppressed is the environment. Yeah. So the right. exploiters and the exploited. Right. right. So, <laughs> so in a sense, the environment becomes a protected class, along with race, along with gender, along with sexual orientation, along with fill in the blank. That's right. Yeah, another thing that you brought out here, Tom, that I think is worth reflecting on a little bit is this, this urgency. So I, I used to do, a, you know, uh, I, I was a minister in the inner city back in the days when the term inner city meant something. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I, I dealt with a lot of people who were looking for handouts, and, and there was always a story. But, but there was always an urgency that accompanied the story. There was never a sense that... Uh, I was uh, permitted to sort of reflect on what I had been told. Uh, I was expected to immediately respond, and if I didn't, I was, I was uh, heartless. I yeah. was, so the idea was is that there was a kind of blackmail. Yeah. So the person need, you know, per, 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 it, the, who presents themselves as needy yeah. uh, says to, to, to me, in effect, I hold in my hands your self-conception, yeah. your self-conceit. You like to think of yourself as a giving person. Well, yeah. uh, until you hand over the money, you can't have that conception back. That's you're right. not allowed to continue to, to, you're not allowed to think of yourself in that way any longer. Yeah. And you must act now. Yeah, yeah. So I think what we have is this yeah. going on at a, a, a yeah. social level, at, a, at the level of, an, yeah. in a, of, a, of a civilization. Yeah. We've got a group of people 
who are you, holding our, our, our understanding of ourselves as a civilization in their possession. Yeah. You've stolen my childhood, how dare you? Yes, that's right, <laughs> that's right. How dare right, you, right, and you right. look to us to provide whatever. For so this, <laughs> but this is, a, this is a form of blackmail. It is, it is, and it, th this I think is, is tied to the way this stuff attempts to gain social control. Um, first of all, it shames people into into this kind of place and then as it gets picked up by other people who can use it as an instrument to to advance certain you know social visions that benefit themselves like we don't need to get into all that right now right, right. Um, you know um, what they, it allows them to do is put a moral and spiritual face on all these different social agendas um, that uh, are really benefiting very f a very few people, and most of these people are already people in control of things that have significant amount of money as well. Again, another yeah, time, another right. show. But the thing cider, cider, yeah. And uh, but on the other hand, what it does is is it starts a place of pressure within society and an increasing pressure on people to conform. Yes. Um, your kids are in school, they're already, I mean, my, my youngest is already part of the cleanup crew. It's one of the tests. Those are good things. Sure. And I explained to him why they're good things and, and, and how to orient them. But these things can be driven by a sense of shame and guilt and the wrong motivations for them, and they can be directed towards, you know, a vision that is something that is problematic on every level. And I think it leads to a new kind of, you know, if you want, we want to use biblical terms, a new kind of Judaism. Mm. Um, a new sense in which if, if you're not performing these um, external rituals and committed to this external vision of, of environmental cause in this distinct way, somehow you are spiritually lacking, morally lacking, and therefore part of the problem rather than the solution, which can justify at some step your own dehumanization because you're on the side of evil, if not your imprisonment or something else because you don't buy into the... the right. and, and at the same time, a significant percentage of that is virtue signaling. Yeah. You right. know, you, there are certain things that are approved things that you have to do, yeah. but they never ask you to give up your air conditioning. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, you know, or yeah. to do things that make you yeah. fundamentally, or would make them fundamentally uncomfortable with their life. Mm -hmm. yeah, that would yeah. inconvenience them too much. Mm -hmm. That's right. A certain amount, minimal amount of inconvenience is okay because yeah. that, that's suffering for the cause. That's but, right. But overall, it, the vast majority of what they demand of you yeah. are things that are either impossible <laughs> or that yeah. really don't get at sort of core problems of energy use or whatever. And, and most of this is, is uh, dependent upon uh, data that we are presented uh, uh, with by people who are authorities or experts or so forth. Uh, I'm reading a fascinating book right now entitled Range by a guy named David Epstein. And uh, what he's getting at in this book is how uh, specialization uh, becomes a kind of hindrance to innovation and to sort of seeing the world in, in ways that not only lead to inventions, but actually seeing the world as it is. So, you know, there are a number of examples that he, that he provides throughout the course of the book uh, that are, are real-world examples of how outsiders were instrumental in, in bringing about the kind of changes and breakthroughs that 
stumped the experts yeah. for like years, like I'm talking decades. And what occurs is that there's a kind of confirmation bias, you know, in these expert with these experts. But when I think about this as just sort of a an experiential level, and I know this is always dismissed, yeah. But just at the anecdotal level, I really don't feel any crisis, yeah. environmental crisis. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I don't actually see the ocean levels rising. <laughs> I don't actually know. I don't actually. I mean, I'm in my 57th year, and every winter has been different. I remember really, really cold ones a long time ago. I remember mild ones recently. I remember really, really cold ones recently. I, I, I don't have any... No, I know that they give us reams of data, but you know what, what Twain said about statistics? Right. And yeah. lying. And what, and what they never <laughs> tell you is that our data only goes back yeah. to the end of the last little ice age where you would expect things to warm up. Right. Because we were in, we were at the last years of a little ice age. So the temperatures, you have to expect them to rise. Yeah, and, and I guess my, my, my larger point is, is I'm not really uh, all that impressed by expertise. And, and I'm saying this as a guy who's had a fair amount of education. Well, and, and the other thing is, is that you, what you notice is, is that there is this kind of, it, you know, anti-intellectualism that, that buffers any sort of critique from these so-called specialists and, 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 and experts. That's an interesting way of putting it, because that's counterintuitive. It is, because what you would say is, show me better science, show me better statistics. So if somebody does, even if it's one out, it's not even considered. It's similar to the whole the, what happened oftentimes with the D Darwin debates here. This, when you take a scientific theory and turn it into a dogma, and yeah. this is what's happening. Here, right, right. That dogma can no longer be challenged because it's the orthodoxy. Right. And so you're a heretic if you are outside of that. And so anytime you have in in, in a world of science something become dogma, ver in, in after listening to their right nonsense of criticizing people who actually have a justification for having dogma. <laughs> right, right. Um, and just for the record, if you actually understand the scientific method, there is no such thing as settled science. That's right. right, right. That's right. That's right. And drawing, drawing, you know, the way they draw ethical conclusions from it is even more bizarre. Yeah, yeah. To find this is exactly, that this is everything us, yeah. that <laughs> modern science said it wasn't entering the level to do. Right, right. So they're moving into the realm of metaphysics at that point, and then we have a game on. But that's they don't right. want to talk well, metaphysics. Well, that's right. If game on, then let's just bring it all where, out. That's where, that's where they don't want to go. It's right. similar to, to, you know, Dawkins and, and figures like that who try to make metaphysical um, interpretations of scientific worldview. Sorry. I think we're at a, at a kind of a beautiful moment in history in the sense that, you know, all of the guys behind the curtain, mm -hmm. right, we can see them now. Mm -hmm. We can see the agenda that are at work. We're also at a place where I think that, you know, I think that, you know, I just, I just uh, purchased a book uh, that uh, was the first edition, uh, Clifford Simak. <laughs> Uh, science fiction book uh, was based on a short story from 1939, <laughs> published in 1950. So we're talking about the golden age of science fiction. You know, like we're talking about astounding stories and all that kind of stuff. And it's just so fun to go back and read those stories because there's such a gee whiz wow science thing going on yeah. with with the stories. But even then, even then, there were people like Bradbury and so you know people 
who, who were able to see there was uh, a kind of, kind of uh, show, you know, kind of a, a phoniness to this, you know, there was a facade. Right. To science, yeah. uh, that it was it was un, in, unable to answer the sort of really fundamental questions mm -hmm. that people uh, have to deal with or have to answer if they're going to live a life. Yeah. So yeah. it's worth noting, by the way, just as an aside, that right now, Blade Runner occurred in the past. <laughs> that's right. That's right. That's right. That's one of the things about some of those films. I say, why didn't you push it out a little farther? <laughs> why does this have to be like? 2019, why not 2,519, I've been anyway. But I guess uh, my, my, my sort of my, the core of what I'm getting at is that the, the, there, is a, there is a sort of cult of science that's terribly unscientific, that presents itself to us as authoritative in every realm of life, yeah. including the ethical realm. And it's just, if you think about it at all, yeah. just, a fraud. Yeah. But it's, it's not real. But you see, we're, we're back to the level of worldview again. Yeah. You can't function without a worldview. Yeah. And if your entire conception of the world, consciously at least, is, quote, scientific, you know, we're trying to come up with a scientific view of the world, you've got to deal with ethical issues, you've got to deal with metaphysics, you've got to deal with all those things because they're fundamental to a worldview. You have to do it. You can never escape it. They just don't realize that, and they don't admit it. Well, they don't admit it, or when they try it, they look really silly. Mm -hmm. Like when they make descript, you know, when they when they try to explain our love of beauty by saying, you know, we lived on the savannah, yeah. and anything that remember, you know, sort of reminds us. Oh, I have you know, into that one. <laughs> yeah, thirty thousand years ago on the savannah is something that we call beautiful. So we've got a collective memory. That's basically it. So, it, ex and exactly how does that work, given that DNA only codes for protein? Well, they don't get into that. Yeah, and all that. It's just, a, again, we get back to the facade. Yeah, that's, it gets, that answers more of the fraud level, the, the reasoning on any of that kind of stuff. That It's like uh, Dawkins. Well, one of the things that, that, that struck me right at the beginning was Chris was talking about how neither the Kantian man nor the alternative that's presented by people like Lynn White is actually biblical vision. That's right. And what really struck me at that point is that it, it, it's almost like a martial art like Judo or Aikido that's going on here, where the basic premise is you want to take where somebody is going and encourage them to go that way only farther than they intend. Yeah, that's and how harder. You, and harder. <laughs> yeah. That's how you throw people in judo. Right. I mean, yeah. you, you take their momentum and use it against them and basically encourage them to keep moving in the direction they're already going. And it, it strikes me that in a lot of ways, this is a kind of intellectual or spiritual judo being performed by Satan. <laughs> in which he takes a, an idea that is not really right, but pushes it to the point where it becomes totally defective. Yeah. Well, isn't that what any heresy is? It's basically a, a, right. a truth taken to some crazy extreme. Right. Well, the, the, the Greek word for heresy, the root word is hiring, which means to choose. So the idea is you pick something that may very well be true, and you run with it to such an extent that it distorts everything else in your thinking. This sounds very Chestertonian. I can't remember what he, I think, you know, he was talking about the insanity or the madness of the world. That was kind of what he was getting at. Yes. Yeah. I yeah. mean, it, it's like taking a sweater and grabbing a, one of the, the threads in the sweater and pulling it, and it distorts everything. Right. That, right. That's what heresy does. And right. that's what both of these, yeah. these kinds of things do. 
and there there is you know there's I mean quite literally it seems to me there's a diabolical mind behind oh yeah it right that is driving things in these different directions so it takes the Christians and pulls them into the direction of Kant right and then it says mm -hmm. okay Let's go in the other direction, right. and it, it sent, and it launches in that direction with this one. It, it's and then it makes Kant look like Kant is supposedly the 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 representative of Christianity, and Which those Christians that? are like, yeah, <laughs> you know, <laughs> oh yeah, I'm Kantian, yeah. You know? <laughs> Right. And it's, yeah, and, and then on the other hand, the, the opposition, well, you, you attack the straw man of what is supposedly Christian, the Christian view of humanity. I mean, I think I see it all the time with the trying to link Christianity with the justification of colonization, and, and, yeah. which was the birth pangs of the modern nation state, which is steeped in all of the issues related to the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. and, and yet... Christianity becomes seen as, of course, there were people who gave voice to these things who were Christians living during the Enlightenment. So, of course, there's going to be that. Just like there's going to be in any stage of history, differing positions lined up and Christians trying to make sense of that part well, of the world. This kind of gets us back to our last podcast about niceness. Yes. Because uh, the thing I see too often is either a capitulation which, uh, you know, is let's jump on the latest bandwagon because we don't want to offend anybody, we want to be nice, or a failure to present in a sort of uh, virile way what the Christian faith is, both attacking sort of the Enlightenment Kantian distortions and yeah. the misrepresentations that we see with this kind of neo-pagan earth worship Gia thing or whatever. <laughs> anyway, we've, we've come to a point in the show where we need to kind of wrap things up. We've gone a little bit long and uh, uh, is there anything that you want to say as, you can, as we conclude, uh, Glenn? Um, I know I think I've covered pretty much everything that I would want to throw in at this point. All right. We'll sure. probably come back to the topic at some point later yeah. anyway. Yeah. And I think I'm good. Wait, you want to say something? In, yeah, wrap, up. wrap it up. The, 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 the green world is getting stranger and stranger, at least from a classic Christian view, much less from maybe even a classic enlightened view. Um, you're starting to see very strange forms of human sexuality related to nature and stuff develop. It's becoming more bizarre and more bizarre. Um, one of the things I think we can do, maybe this is just for fun, maybe it isn't, but when, when it starts to press itself into the church as a, something we need to start taking seriously, the first thing I think we do need to do is, is sort of like Karl Barth used to say of evil, uh, shrug your shoulder at it. Tell them they don't need to shove their moral um, meta-narrative down your throat because it's nothing more than a social contrast basic on nothing more than your own ethical convictions. Right. Flip it around that we actually do have a comprehensive case for sustaining and working towards a proper relationship to the creation that will actually continue its flourishing and not turn it into some kind of false god which will only end up uh, hurting humanity in the long yeah. run. Yeah. Well, let me just add one thing because I did think of something. You know, we <laughs> remember Alistair McIntyre, you know, with his yeah. famous statement about waiting for the next Benedict. Yeah. You know, uh, and our friend Rod Dreher wrote a book entitled The Benedict Option. You know what I think we need? I don't think we need Benedict so much as we need Augustine. Yeah. We're waiting right. for the next Augustine. Oh, yeah. The, anyway. the Augustine option. <laughs> you, you heard it here. You've heard it here. Get anyway. ready. <laughs> anyway, well, let's uh, just say goodbye then. Goodbye, folks. Bye now. Bye now.